you know, we know that wildlife crossings are uh, a, a good thing. Um, the, the problem arises when you ask the question, okay, what does that mean for the larger animal population, right? If, if the goal of a wildlife crossing is to, you know, preserve a, a, a population of bears or elk or bobcats or or what have you, you know, that's something we, we know a little bit less about. And, you know, the I mean, kind of the, one of the things that you see in, you know, some of these early road ecology studies is not all animals are using these crossings equally. This is Science for the People. I'm Carolyn Wilkie. Today, my guest is journalist Ben Goldfarb. He's the author of the book, Crossings, How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet. And I'm excited to bring you this conversation about pervasive infrastructure that might, on the surface, seem pretty uninteresting. As Ben notes in his book, some scholars call humans an infrastructure species, and boy have we built a lot of roads. Crossings focuses on road ecology, a discipline that's exploring all the ways that roads intersect with ecosystems and how roads impact the animals living there. And his book covers a lot of ground, from the history of roads themselves to how this field got going, to what scientists have learned about animals knocked off by cars, migration stymied, and environments riddled with noise pollution. We talk about all that and get into what people have done to try to address the problems caused by roads, including wildlife crossings and campaigns to help move animals that find themselves stuck. Ben relates stories of these efforts from his reporting, including from his visit to Tasmania, the roadkill capital of the world, to witness people caring for car-stricken animals at great cost to themselves. And he shares about what roads reveal about humans and our societies. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Thanks so much for joining me today, Ben, to talk about your book, Crossings. Thanks a lot for having me. So what prompted you to write this book about the ecology of roads? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I, I so as a journalist, I write a lot about wildlife conservation and uh, ecology and you know, in, in, back in 2013, I, I sort of wrote this series of stories about habitat connectivity, you know, the, the idea that animals need to move across large landscapes to find food and mates and all the other things they they need to make a living. And obviously, roads are, you know, one of the primary obstacles to that kind of free mobility for, for wild animals. Uh, so, it, so that year in 2013, I was in Montana, you know, working on these, these stories, and I actually got a tour of some wildlife crossing structures, you know, these bridges and tunnels uh, on Highway 93 north of uh, Missoula, Montana. And it was just standing on one of those wildlife overpasses, this incredible, spectacular bridge that was really built with grizzly bears and elk and other species in mind. That was just such a, a compelling idea, you know, the idea that we would create infrastructure for wild animals and it was just a kind of an amazing intellectual challenge too or at least that's that's how it seemed to me you know how do you how do you know what kind of bridge a bear or an elk or a moose will will want to use and how do you design uh infrastructure for non-human users it, it was just it seemed both like kind of a you know a beautiful poetic idea that we would accommodate animals in that way and also just a fascinating a fascinating scientific and, and intellectual challenge yeah, it is kind of funny. You in somewhere in your book you call or you refer to someone else calling humans the infrastructure species. So that does strike me as kind of a curiosity that we've started building it for animals. Um, yeah, ab absolutely. You know, and I, I remember being up on this this wildlife overpass with Marcel Hauser, who's a great road ecologist. You know, and he was 
you know, he was talking about how, you know, they, they, the, the overpass really needed a visual screen because, you know, headlights from cars below would sweep over the overpass. And he had actually, in one of his kind of remote um, motion activated camera videos, you know, he'd seen a, a black bear running away from this kind of sweep of headlights. And that's the, that's the sort of thing that just captivated me. You know, I mean, the headlights, again, we you know we, we were all so accustomed to being on roads and experiencing all of the sensory stressors that come with traffic. But, you know, for this bear, obviously headlights were this bizarre alien thing, you know, they're not infrastructure species as you, as you say. So how do you create infrastructure that entices a non-infrastructure species? What an interesting idea. Mm, Yeah. And so to get at that question, um, you explore the ways that roads affect the landscapes around them, the animals that are living there. Um, do you mind sharing some of those ways? Obviously, animals becoming roadkill is um, is a big one. But what are what are other ways that roads hurt and sometimes help creatures? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. You know, I mean, certainly roadkill, as you say, is the most conspicuous, obvious one. You know, we've all seen the dead deer or squirrel or raccoon by the side of the highway. You know, but that's really just the tip of the iceberg. Um, and even worse in some ways, you know, is the the barrier effect that roads create, right? I mean, this steady stream of cars, uh, you know, that that goes down, you know, most American highways is incredibly intimidating to wild animals and, and you know, often prevents them from crossing altogether. And in some cases, that can really be worse uh, than roadkill. You know, in, in the book, I talk about these big herds of migratory mule deer and elk and pronghorn antelope that live in places like Wyoming, you know, and, and have, that have to move across really large landscapes seasonally to, you know, find the resources they need. And, you know, in some cases, uh, you know, those some of those herds have starved en masse because, you know, highways like Interstate 80 prevent them from reaching these, you know, gentle kind of temperate, low elevation uh, valleys that they need to access in winter to survive. So, you know, as some as some biologists kind of pointed out to me, you know, the, I mean, those herds, they can survive, you know, a few collisions, um, but they can't survive losing access to all of that habitat. So that barrier effect, you know, in some ways is, is even worse than uh, roadkill itself. Hmm. Yeah. And it, it sounds like there are plenty of other ways that roads are affecting animals from the salt that runs off of them to, um, yeah, carving up habitats and yeah yeah absolutely i mean you know one of the one of the big ones that uh, you know i always think about because it affects humans so egregiously too is is noise pollution uh you know i mean there's there's a there's some fantastic studies um demonstrating that you know noise pollution is really a form of habitat loss right i mean if you're a you know, if you're an animal, you know, you really make your living um, with your ears in a lot of ways. You know, if you're an owl, you have to listen to the the rustling footsteps of your prey in the grass. And if you're, you know, if you're a, a vole, you know, you have to listen to the, the footsteps of a coyote or the wing beats of an owl. You know, so so hearing is really just a, a, a vital sense, uh, you know, for basically all beings. And when the when the, you know, the, the noise pollution of roads, you know, all of those engines and uh, air brakes and tires, especially uh, masks, those auditory signals, you know, then then animals don't want to live near the road, right? I mean, it makes a lot of intuitive sense. Um, you know, so road noise is really driving creatures away um, from, you know, from vast swaths of habitat, I, I think. And, you know, and, and it affects it affects humans in analogous ways. I mean, I think that in some ways, noise pollution is one of the great 
unsung public health crises of our time. You know, there are lots of studies showing that noise pollution from roads is elevating our our uh, our stress levels and cortisol levels, and uh, you know, leading to cardiac disease and stroke and diabetes and truly shortening our lifespans. You know, so um, I mean, certainly noise pollution is one of those things that we're so awash in every day. Uh, that we, you know, in some ways cease to hear the noise pollution, and yet it's still, uh, you know, doing really uh, grievous damage to our our lives and bodies. So one thread that runs through the book is uh, the idea or the study of road ecology. Um, what yeah. is road ecology? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, and it's it's in some ways it's difficult to define. Um, I mean, you know, I think that the the sort of the, the pithiest explanation is is that it's the, the study of all of the many ways in which roads shape ecosystems and nature, um, and uh, you know, and and the wild animals who call those ecosystems home. Um, I mean, it's you know, it's called road ecology, but in some ways, it's you know, it's really it might be more properly called transportation ecology because there are road ecologists who are also working on things like trains and you know and uh, and marine roads you know the fact that there are these shipping lanes out there that uh, you know that the giant freighters um you know use kind of habitually um so you know it's called road ecology but you know there are certainly road ecologists working on other forms of transportation as well and you know i think the reason that it's a difficult discipline to define is that you know is that roads are such a they're so transformative, you know, and they and they they shape landscapes so profoundly that in some ways it's hard to figure out exactly where the purview of of road ecology ends. You know, I mean, we we've you know talked about things like roadkill and the barrier effect, right? These 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 impacts on wildlife that are caused very immediately and directly by by roads. Uh, but you know, roads are in some ways the necessary kind of precondition to all kinds of industrial activity and and uh, land use change and habitat loss. You know, one chapter of the book uh, is about roads in Brazil, you know, and in, in the Amazon, uh, you know, there's this, what uh, scientists know is this kind of fishbone pattern of roads where there's, you know, one big highway goes through the rainforest and then all of these smaller roads, like the ribs of the fish kind of extend up into the, into the rainforest. And, you know, the, that road network is obviously essential for deforestation and, you know, the conversion of rainforest to cattle pasture and, you know, and and uh, soybean plantations. Um, so, you know, would you call deforestation a road ecology impact? You know, I mean, not exactly. And yet it's facilitated by the road. Right. So, mm -hmm. you know, in, in some ways, roads, I, I mean, the, the the dumb little quip that I use in the book, you know, is that root roads are the the roots of all evil, you know, R-O-U-T-E-S. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, th I think there's some truth to that, that they're kind of, again, the you know, the necessary uh, infrastructure that precedes all habitat loss and, and land conversion. Yeah. Yeah. And it is fascinating to me that roads have, um, I don't know, evolved the scientific discipline around them. How did road ecology develop as a field of study? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. You know, I mean, it's, it's interesting. You can go back to the 1920s and, you know, there are there are road ecologists, even if, you know, they wouldn't have called themselves that. Um, you know, there, were, there was this kind of fascinating 
explosion, you know, starting in 1925 or so of biologists quantifying roadkill, which again was actually not even a term that existed at that point. You know, the word roadkill was not, it was not coined until the late 1940s. Um, but, you know, in the early 1900s, you know, cars were ascendant, obviously. Uh, and, you know, biologists were really worried about their about cars' impacts on on wildlife. Um, you know, it was sort of this interesting parallel movement that was happening. Um, you know, as as cars took over American cities, um, you know, there was a lot of uproar about uh, the, the dangers of automobiles. You know, there were no safety features back then. There was no signage. You know, there there uh, you know no, nobody really knew how to drive. Uh, not that we're very good at it now. Um, and uh, you know, so that I mean, the the, the death tolls in America. American cities due to cars were just catastrophic. And there was a lot of societal outrage about, uh, you know, the incursion of the automobile into all of these, you know, pedestrian spaces. And, you know, in some ways, this kind of roadkill quantification science, you know, early road ecology began in the 1920s uh, as this kind of analogous movement. You know, again, all of these biologists who are sort of like, wait a second, the car is this, you know, transformative, fearsome new technology. What is it doing to wild animals? You know, so there were all of these guys, you know, taking road trips around the country in the 20s and 30s, you know, counting the dead jackrabbits and garter snakes and uh, redheaded woodpeckers that they that they found. Um, so, you you know, it really it goes back almost a, almost a century. Um, the term road ecology, uh, you know, kind of pops up in the 1990s. Um, in English, it's coined by uh, a guy named Richard Foreman, who is a, a landscape ecologist at Harvard. Um, and you know, the story that he told me um, that you know I thought was really powerful was that you know one day he was in his office with a, a bunch of students, and they were looking at this aerial photograph of, of the the forest, um, and they were talking about you know all of the features of the forest, you know, here's where the water flows and here's, you know, the, here are kind of the patches of animal habitat and here's why the people, you know, put their houses where they did. Um, and then suddenly, you know, Richard looked at the road running through the middle of the forest and, and said, wait a second, you know, we kind of know a lot about everything else in this picture, but we don't really know much about that, you know, about that, that road. And, you know, I think that that kind of speaks to the fact that, you know, roads are such ubiquitous features of our lives, right? We use them every day. We drive on them all the time. You know, we're, they're almost invisible to us. We take them for granted, you know, which is, which I think is why they, they escaped study for as, as long as they did. So, so Richard was really the one who, uh, you know, at least coined the English term um, road ecology. And, and uh, that was really when the field itself began was, in, you know, kind of in the mid 1990s. Hmm. Yeah. And sort of as part of that, it strikes me that um, maybe as features of the landscape, roads haven't been around as long as other things that that animals and have encountered. Um, and so, I guess in reading your book, it it occurred to me that roads have a history um, and that they have evolved through the years. Um, some starting as wildlife trails. So, how did we get from those sorts of, I don't know, less developed roads to the concrete and asphalt roadways that we have now? Yeah, you know, it's this, this kind of interesting process of evolution. As I mean, as you as you say, uh, you know, a lot of our even our some of our biggest highways began as as uh, as animal paths. Um, you know, often uh, kind of carved by bison. Um, you know, which which migrated, of course, in these huge herds. Um, you know, sometimes in search of of salt licks and and other uh, other other resources. And you know, and then those those 
animal trails became, you know, indigenous footpaths, you know, native people in North America had a, enormous networks of, of um, you know, I mean, it's, I guess this sort of blurs the line between trail and road, right? But, you know, certainly huge transportation networks um, all over the continent, you know, often kind of paralleling uh, water courses, you know, and then those, uh, you know, with the, with the arrival of, of European colonists, you know, many of those native footpaths became wagon routes and then gravel roads and uh you know and today some of them are are interstate highways you know so it's kind of this um yeah it's that's one of the many tragic ironies of roads i think is that you know these structures that began as animal infrastructure uh in a sense uh you know became uh infrastructure that destroys wild animals you know it's it's uh yeah kind of kind of sad to think about and too you know the fact that i mean so many of these native roads or so many, so many of these roads began as native native trails and and uh, and, and footpaths uh and you know we're and were then subsequently you know in the in the 18th and 19th century you know commandeered by uh the u.s army and and um you know and and colonists and other sort of forces of of uh you know domineering that you know really um ravaged native populations right so it's, that's that's kind of the yeah again the tragic irony of roads is that you know these structures began as as you know as trails created by wild animals and subsequently indigenous people and then were used to subjugate indigenous people and destroy wild animals right so it's absolutely not an accident that roads now crisscross um crisscross our country yeah yeah no and you know i mean and and um you know people like uh you know john c calhoun of course you know that the uh the famous uh the famously racist senator uh you know were were among the the politicians pushing hardest for road networks in the 19th century because they recognized them as these you know potential tools of conquest and you know and certainly you see that not only in north america but you know but all over the world you know roads are this way of extending governmental and colonial power and and uh, industry you know and and essentially conquering uh you know areas and certainly that's the case in, in north america hmm. yeah so you mentioned when we were talking about road ecology that it's you know it's a fairly new discipline at least in its name um and it strikes me that a lot of the studies um in this space are newer um including those on migration uh, how have scientists documented the effects of roads on migration, and why was this so challenging to study? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a good it's a good question. Um, you know, it's interesting. I mean, the, I mean the the you know the notion that animals migrate between different patches of habitat, you know, is something that that certainly. You know, has been understood for uh you know for a, a long time and yet those migrations were very hard to follow you know it's i mean one of the so one chapter of the book deals with sort of these migratory herds of mammals in in wyoming you know and and of course wyoming's you know kind of a very rugged state and uh you know these creatures are just they're just hard to follow you know these the often often uh you know in the going back to the 1960s uh you know biologists would see these big herds of elk and mule deer and antelope uh you know in in valleys and then those animals would just kind of go up into the you know into the mountains uh in summer um you know looking for kind of lush green high elevation pastures and uh you know and we just kind of lose them you know and, and didn't really know uh you know where where they would go so you know it wasn't really until you know the the 1990s um you know that uh that 
sort of tracking technology got sophisticated enough to follow these animals first using, you know, kind of radio telemetry um, sets. So, you know, you'd put a collar on a, you know, on on an elk and then you'd fly around in a small airplane or, you know, hike out there on foot trying to get the signal from that radio collar. Um, And obviously that was, you know, difficult and dangerous in its its own right. Um, And, you know, it didn't tell you that much, you know, it could tell you, you know, if you, if you detected that collar signal, you know, in July, you know, in one mountain range, and then you found it again in, you know, in February in a valley, you know, okay, you hear now, you know, two places that the animal uses, but you don't necessarily know how the animal moves between those places, right? Um, So it really wasn't until the 2000s when satellite collars, um, you know, sort of first became convenient and cheap and they had, you know, they had long lasting batteries and, you know, and, and researchers were able to put these satellite collars on wild animals and, and then get all of these GPS points um, that, you know, that not only told you, you know, where the animal spent the summer and where it spent the winter, but also told you how it got between point A and point B. Um, and, you know, what, what researchers we're able to do with that information is is basically say okay you know we know what we we know where these migratory routes are and now we know where they're crossing highways too i mean that's a, obviously really important information if you're going to build a wildlife crossing that allows animals to safely move over the highway um you know you have to know where those animals are moving um so you know it's that, that's I think that you put your finger on the fact that, you know, this is a kind of a newer discipline um, and, you know, it's, it's really, it's rise has in some ways been fueled by technology, by the, the, by the, the advent of these cheap, convenient, long lasting satellite collars that, that have in relatively recent years been able to tell scientists exactly where these animals are moving across the landscape and intersecting with that human infrastructure. I see. So that, yeah, so you need to know where the animals are going in order to develop, like make crossings for them. And so that, I guess, leads to the question of how did wildlife crossings originate? Where where in the world was this idea coming from? And what were those early attempts to help animals cross roads looking like? Yeah. You know, you know, wildlife crossings really begin as European technologies, um, you know, and, and really, I mean, to this day, you know, the, a lot of European countries are the best at building them and have the most, you know, especially the Netherlands is, is really, uh, you know, probably the, the world's leader in wildlife crossings and, you know, and has more of them, you know, per mile or per kilometer of road network than basically anybody. But, you know, they really they really originate in France in the 1950s. Um, you know, it's basically these game bridges that were, you know, sort of supposed to allow deer to to uh, to cross roads in the French countryside, you know, mostly at the kind of the behest of hunters who, who you know, were were worried about uh, deer populations. And, you know, and, and those early crossings weren't very effective. I think, they, you know, they were pretty narrow. Um, you know, they got used by farmers uh, a lot you know i'm not it's not uh, yeah it's it's there's not much information out there about uh you know the efficacy of those early french wildlife overpasses um but you know pretty quickly the that that basic concept of a, a bridge for animals you know spreads to uh germany austria switzerland um elsewhere in europe you know and, and those countries really take that idea and run with it building increasingly um large effective structures um 
You know, in, in North America, it it kind of lagged behind in a lot of ways. You know, you go back to the mid 1970s, you know, and, and uh, a few wildlife crossings, you know, start to pop up here and there. Um, you know, there was a there was a uh, an overpass in Utah for uh, for mule deer, and um, you know, some underpasses in uh, in Wyoming and Colorado. Um, but you know, for the most part, um, you know, it's it's really not until you know the late 80s, early 90s. 1990s that uh, you know that wildlife crossings uh, you know really start to become somewhat mainstream um, in in the U.S. But it's you know it's interesting to sort of trace that evolution because it's not you know it's it's not linear, right? You would sort of think that you know okay here's this useful technology that you know helps animals cross highways and avoids you know prevents collisions with uh, you know with with vehicles and deer and you know obviously those collisions are potentially really dangerous so it's like it's it's a very intuitive idea but you know it's it it definitely is not this rapid exponential growth that you might expect you know it's it's almost like every single state has to kind of learn independently that oh yeah these you know these things are effective and they work and we should be building more of them you know it, there's i mean it's it's interesting to go back and talk to you know some of the some of the engineers and biologists who built or consulted on on uh, you know some of these early structures and and every single one of them you know has a story about having to you know uh convince a skeptical boss or superior you know that these these are actually a, a good idea um so yeah it's it's uh, you know and, and you still see some skepticism today but you know fortunately there is this huge body of scientific literature that that points to the uh, the efficacy of these 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 structures so it's you know sort of a gradual level evolution over over time um beginning in europe and then uh you know very gradually spreading through uh, through north america hmm. Yeah. And can you describe some of the wildlife crossings you've reported on? What do, what do they look like? What sorts of needs do different animals have? Yeah, yeah, you know they they they're really they're really a, there's just a vast diversity of structures out there today. You know, I mean this, I mean they're really the first the first wildlife crossings or at least many of the first wildlife crossings, you know, are really aimed at those those big herds of migrating deer and elk. Um, you know, and and that makes a lot of sense, right? Because because those herds migrate along really predictable pathways. Um, you know, and and in some ways, you know, wildlife migration is almost this form of intergenerational culture, you know, where these these migratory roots are passed down from, you know, doe to fawn or cow to calf, you know, over over uh, over many, many generations. So, you know, so these, so these animals, especially mule deer, you know, migrate in, in these really faithful ways. And as a result, they cross roads in really predictable places. Um, and so, you know, it's it becomes possible, you know, in the in the 1990s and early 2000s, you know, as this satellite collar technology is improving to say, okay, every single year, you know, a big herd of mule deer is crossing the highway right here. Uh, and we can build, you know, we can build an underpass, um, you know, which is often just a big kind of concrete box culvert or, you know, a big sort of like dirt floored um, you know, sort of tunnel, essentially, um, that allows those animals to cross under that highway safely. Um, you know, and typically those underpasses are, are flanked by roadside fences, right? Because you don't want the animal crossing the highway anywhere it wants. You want to direct it to that that wildlife that safe crossing under the highway so the fences are a really important part of the of the kind of the overall wildlife crossing system um you know so so, that, so that's really how it 
how it begins in many places like Wyoming, Colorado, Montana, Utah, you know, all of these Western states that have these big migratory herds of animals. Um, you know, it, re it really starts. Yeah, that's that's really how it starts. And then, you know, over over time, it, it sort of spreads to different species as as well. You know, now you see you're starting to see um, amphibian tunnels uh, popping up, you know, in in, uh, in Amherst, Massachusetts, you know, the first uh, salamander tunnel goes in in the in the 1980s. Uh, and now, you know, the, there are a handful of these, these things kind of springing up, um, you know, and, and those and those sorts of tunnels, uh, you know, they're, of course, they're a fraction the size of, of uh, you know, a big tunnel for elk or, or mule deer, you know, and, and uh, you could drive over them a million times and not realize there's a little passage for amphibians uh, under the under the highway um, but you know it's the same concept it's just a uh, you know it's a, it's a it's a safe passage under the, under a roadway um, you know flanked by some kind of barrier that directs the animal um, to the passage so you know and, and so I mean now you see some version of this you know, for I mean, again, for so many different species all over the all over the the world, really. You know, I, I was recently in in Texas looking at uh, ocelot passages um, in, in in southern southern Texas. You know, these these little uh, underpasses, um, you know, that have been used uh, by ocelots and bobcats and and other other critters. You know, in Kenya there are you know giant uh, underpasses, you know, two stories high for uh, for elephants. You know, in in um, in much of uh, Central and South America, you know, you see rope bridges going over highways for you know for primates that uh you know that that have to cross roads without descending to the the forest floor so you know every every species has has its own slightly different set of requirements and and uh you know that's that's a lot of what the road ecology movement has done is is to figure out exactly what those different species need and and you know try to tailor crossings to them hmm. yeah yeah thanks for sharing that um, and, and in your book, you mentioned that one of the big dilemmas in road ecology is that it's, um, well, or one of the big questions in road ecology is what does it even mean for a wildlife crossing to work? Do you mind speaking to that a bit? Yeah, it's a, it's a, a, a great, a great question, both, you know, that has both kind of a scientific and a philosophical answer. I mean, it's, it's so on a very intuitive level, right? You'd imagine that a, a wildlife crossing works if animals used to cross the highway safely, right? And there, you know, and there, there, there's lots and lots of research showing that that happens. Um, you know, that that uh, there are many studies basically saying that, you know, when you put a wildlife crossing in uh, with fences, uh, you know, roadkill falls by around 90%. Um, and, you know, these, these animal migrations are able to continue and animals learn to use the structures very quickly. Um, so, you know, from the, the, the standpoint of, you know, of, of preventing these dangerous and expensive roadkill incidents and the standpoint of letting these these movements continue, you know, we know that wildlife crossings are uh, a, a good thing. Um, the, the problem arises when you ask the question, okay, what does that mean for the larger animal population, right? If, if the goal of a wildlife crossing is to, you know, preserve a, a, a population of bears or elk or bobcats or or what have you you know that's something we, we know a little bit less about and you know the i mean kind of the one of the things that you see in you know some of these early road ecology studies is not all animals are using these crossings equally right there's there's a you know study from from california basically showing that you know that that 
Bobcats and coyotes are crossing highways, but the animals who tend to cross are these sort of desperate, young, sort of sub-adults who are, you know, looking for their own territories. And they're not, they're not finding places to breed necessarily. They're, you know, they're, they're moving back across, back and forth across the highway, you know, looking for a mate and basically not finding them. So if what you care about is, you know, the population reproducing and, you know, the, the exchange of genetic material on either side of the highway, um, that's not really happening because, you know, the animals who are doing the crossing, you know, again, are these sort of like low status juveniles, um, you know, that aren't able to, uh, to, to reproduce, you know, and you could sort of imagine that being the case, um, you know, in, in many different situations. And, you know, I mean, the problem with, with that is that, you know, we know that one of the big harms of roads is that they cause genetic fragmentation, right? And, it, you know, I mean, kind of the classic example of that are, are the, the mountain lions um, who live near Los Angeles in the Santa Monica Mountains. You know, those, those animals are so kind of hemmed in by freeways that they're unable to find mates outside of their own little population. And as a result, you know, some male mountain lions have ended up breeding with their daughters, granddaughters, great granddaughters, um, you know, and as a result, you know, the population is sort of increasingly uh, inbred and, and uh, you know, genetic defects have started to crop up and, you know, and, and um, in the absence of a wildlife crossing, you know, that population would ultimately be doomed, right? So it's really important that animals not only cross highways, but, you know, are, are able to breed on the other side to, you know, to kind of refresh the gene pool and, and uh, you know, escape that kind of chronic inbreeding that's, uh, you know, afflicted those, those mountain lions. But again, you know, if the only animals who are crossing are these, you know, kind of young, desperate sub-adults, um, and they're not mating on either side, you know, that's not, that's not happening. So, you know, that's something that, that road ecologists have become increasingly focused on is, is, you know, can we, can we show, can we show not only that animals use these wildlife crossings, but that, you know, that that males and females use them, that young animals use them, that you're, that you're getting the entire sort of diversity of, of a population, um, both demographically and genetically, and that they're, you know, that they're crossing the highway and successfully reproducing on either side of it. Um, and that's not, you know, something you can necessarily show with a, you know, a motion activated camera trap you know, at the mouth of the wildlife crossing, that's something that, you know, you really need to sort of create these, you know, you need a lot of genetic samples and to create these kind of sophisticated family trees. Um, and, uh, you know, and that's starting to happen, you know, in in, um, in Banff National Park, where there, you know, there are some, fa some very famous wildlife crossings, you know, around 2016, 17, 18, you know, researchers um, did show that, you know, the grizzly bears were not only using these wildlife crossings, but that they were using them to reproduce on either side. And then they were taking their cubs back and forth across the, across the crossings and the cubs were learning to use them. So that's really important, right? That you get the entire, you know, the entire diversity of a population uh, moving back and forth and reproducing. I'm glad to hear that that work is underway trying to figure out if, if the crossings are helping animals and their populations. Um, and I'm glad that you mentioned the the cougars near living near LA and it sounds like there's a campaign for those for those animals that that may help future generations. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, that's, that's a really, you know, an, an amazing story. I think it's, it's one of my favorite stories in the book because it just so clearly demonstrates, you know, the, the ways in which roads really distort nature and, and wildlife 
populations. And, you know, and, and, I mean, there, as I said, there's this, you know, kind of a very small population of mountain lions, you know, trapped between the 101 and, and, uh, and the 405. I mean, it's really some of the, some of the busiest freeways on planet earth, um, you know, surround, uh, surround these animals, you know, which are just uh, 30 miles or so from, from Los Angeles. Um, and, you know, as I, as I mentioned, uh, you know, research has basically shown that, you know, if, if those animals are, are, not able to disperse out and find unrelated mates, you know, they are ultimately doomed. They're, you know, sort of trapped in what uh, one paper called an extinction vortex, which I think is a really evocative term. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, as, but, but fortunately, you know, as, as you say, um, you know, they, they are there, there is a wildlife crossing now being, being built for them. It's under construction. Um, it's, it's called the, the Wallace Annenberg wildlife crossing. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it crosses uh, the, the 101, um, which I, I think is the, the busiest freeway in the United States. Um, ten, 10 lanes of traffic in, in both directions. Um, and uh, you know, that's, about, that's about 30 miles from, from Los Angeles. Um, and uh, that, that should be done in, uh, in 2025. Um, and that's a really exciting project because, you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's in some ways the most, the biggest and most ambitious project in the history of, of this discipline of, of, of road ecology. You know, it's obviously, it's this enormous freeway um, with, you know, I mean, hundreds of thousands of cars every day, uh, you know, huge noise and light pollution problems that, uh, you know, that the design of the wildlife crossing is kind of meant to mask. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, I mean, the, the whole crossing itself covers about nine acres. That's the kind of the bridge and the sort of surrounding habitat that they're engineering to, you know, sort of funnel the animals to the bridge. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, you know, sort of an incredibly exciting thing. And, you know, I mean, mountain lions are kind of the flagship that they're trying to get to cross. But, you know, it's I mean, the whole ecosystem is fragmented by this, you know, this giant freeway. Right. So, you know, they're also thinking about, you know, creating habitat on this crossing for lizards and snakes and, uh, you know, little uh, birds like rentits, you know, which are sort of birds that don't fly super well. So you need, you know, shrubs that, uh, you know, allow them to kind of hopscotch across the across the top of this uh, this overpass. Uh, you know, they're even uh, you know, they, they have a giant on site nursery where they're, you know, they're growing the plants that are going to provide the vegetation and the habitat atop the crossing you know they've they've got you know sort of native fungi that they're going to use to inoculate the soil you know to create the kind of mycorrhizal networks right so it's it's this just unbelievably inspiring and ambitious project that that's really attempting to not only build a, a bridge over over uh, the 101 but create an entirely new ecosystem uh, that you know animals will will not only cross over but you know potentially live on top of yeah thanks for sharing that it will be really interesting to see how that plays out for the ecosystem there in the years to come yeah yeah it's yeah it, sh it should be fascinating you know and they don't really i mean for to save that population of of cougars you know they don't i mean they don't need a ton of animals moving back and forth across it you know even even one animal crossing every two to four years you know could provide enough new genetic material to kind of refresh that gene pool and, and prevent extinction so it, yeah it'll, it'll be fascinating to see what happens yeah um so you mentioned amphibians and reptiles also having crossings built for them what is happening to those animals at roads yeah you know i think i think in a lot of ways you know amphibians and reptiles are the they're kind of the poster species for the the harms of of roads um you know and especially especially amphibians you know because they're 
you know, in, in places like the, the Northeast, you know, in New England, um, you know, they, they undertake these, these, you know, these kind of these big seasonal migrations, um, you know, to their breeding ponds, you know, they kind of spend the winter up in the upland forest. And then, you know, the, and then the first, you get the first warm, wet spring night, and they all kind of move and um, mass to, you know, to, to breeding ponds to spawn. Um, and the problem is that, you know, between often roads run between those, um, you know, those, those two habitats, the forests and the wetlands. Uh, and, you know, and, and when, uh, you know, a big army of spotted salamanders or leopard frogs or what have you, you know, goes walking across that road, uh, you know, on a on a, a, a dark spring night when drivers don't necessarily see them, you know, the result can be carnage. And, you know, we're, we're losing a lot of uh, amphibian populations as a as a result of uh, of, of roads. Um, so there are, you know, there are amphibian crossings out there you know i mentioned the spotted salamander tunnel in in massachusetts but you know i think that for a long time you know we didn't really we didn't really think much about amphibians in 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 um designing wildlife crossings you know and the reason for that is that you know a lot of as i mentioned a lot of early wildlife crossings were sort of aimed at these you know big migratory animals like deer and elk and you know and and Partly that was because, you know, those big migratory herds cross the roads in predictable places, but it's also partly because obviously those are the animals that endanger driver safety, right? Uh, you know, some something like, you know, 200 drivers uh, are killed in, in uh, deer crashes every year and, you know, and, and uh, large animal collisions, you know, cost society something like $8 billion every, every year and, you know, hospital bills and vehicle repairs and, and so on. So, you know, by building wildlife crossings that prevented collisions with deer and elk uh you know you could theoretically protect human safety i mean not theoretically you you know you can protect human safety and you know and, and save money uh as well you know and there's a lot there's lots of research showing that you know wildlife crossings and some of these you know, targeted at some of these migratory mammal herds, you know, actually pay for themselves very quickly because they just prevent all of these, you know, expensive collisions, um, which makes them which makes them very appealing um, to, uh, you know, to, to transportation departments, you know, which are which tend to be very cost conscious, whereas you know, nobody's really ever died hitting a salamander, right? Um, so because you know, because you know, these these amphibians or reptiles, you know, were not. They they were not they were conservation concerns, but they weren't necessarily human safety concerns. Um, you know, they they transportation departments tended not to build crossings for them, and and uh, you know, and on occasion when uh, you know transportation departments did try to allocate some money for you know a, a, a turtle tunnel or you know a, a, a salamander crossing or what have you, you know, politicians mocked them and and uh, you know and called it government waste i mean who would you know who would want to spend half a half a million dollars saving turtles you know what a what an outrageous idea um so yeah that's you know it's kind of the one of this the another tragic irony of roads is that you know some of the the species that are most in most dire need of wildlife crossings reptiles and amphibians you know have been um, some of the species that have most escaped our concern for a, a very long time and you know and now thankfully that's you know starting to change to some extent yeah and so then to that point that it's hard to get crossings built for amphibians that led you to carrying frogs in a bucket across highways in in portland and seeing how people were were trying to work for these animals in the absence of those those means yeah that was a really a really fun experience and you know i mean and that you know there are there are many many kind of amphibian 
bucket brigades out there, you know, and I mean, there, you know, this exists in, you know, everywhere from, from Canada to Belgium to you know, South Africa, you know, where there are these, these citizen groups that are out there, you know, on, on these damp spring nights, you know, looking for, uh, you know, looking for amphibians that are, you know, trying to cross roads, um, you know, on their, on their way to, uh, you know, to their, to their breeding ponds. And, you know, I was, I was really fortunate, as you say, to participate in, uh, in one of those efforts that, that would be the, uh, the Harborton Frog Shuttle, um, which is in, uh, in, in Portland, Oregon. And, and there they, they have a, a population of northern red-legged frogs, uh, you know, a, a sort of an increasingly scarce, endangered uh, frog species. This is actually the last population of, of red-legged frogs in Portland. Um, and every year, you know, they in, in kind of in the fall, they go down from uh, forest park, this big block of forest, um, to this wetland where they where they they breed, uh, and along the way they you know they they cross uh, a couple of residential streets, uh, they cross Highway 30, you know a big federal highway, uh, a set of train tracks. So there's so much infrastructure, uh, you know, between their two habitats, um, and uh, you know, and definitely some you know some mass flattenings were uh, you know had had been observed in the past, and you know a few years ago or a number of years ago now, um, you know this. This, this group of uh, of of residents you know who had kind of documented this problem got together and they started this little this wonderful little frog shuttle um where you know they they uh, they drive around you know picking up frogs uh, and moving them to the breeding pond and then when i came um you know it, it was spring so they basically and they kind of spent the winter in this in this breeding pond and now the, the frogs were ready to migrate back to the forest um so we just you know it was a, a really fun beautiful experience you know basically this group sets up a, a little temporary fence along the edge of the wetland. The frogs all hop out, you know, on their way to the forest, and then they bump into this fence. And, you know, they're not the smartest animals in the world. They just kind of sit there. And, and uh, you know, we we just walked up and down the fence, you know, picking up these frogs and and uh, putting them in buckets. And then when we had a bunch of them, you know, driving them up to the, uh, up to the forest. So, you know, they could, uh, you know, make it back to their habitat without having to, to brave traffic that would uh, surely, surely kill them. So it was, you know, it was kind of, it was, a, it was a beautiful thing and it was really uh, touching and inspiring to see, uh, you know, dozens of people out on a, you know, on a cold, rainy, night uh you know saving these uh these creatures that are not exactly uh you know warm warm and cuddly it was a, a really a, a beautiful a beautiful thing but you know it's also an imperfect thing i mean i think that even even the you know the organizers of that effort would say um you know this is this is this is a you know kind of a, a a temporary imperfect measure you know obviously we don't get every single frog you know some still get some still get killed um and you know they'd be better off if they had some kind of wildlife crossing structure that you know allowed them to make this journey without without human help um you know the problem is there's just so much infrastructure that you would need a very you know, a very long, dark tunnel, which, you know, might not be uh, super appealing to the to the frog. So it's a it's a it's a difficult situation um, to to uh, to to mitigate. Um, and, uh, you know, yeah, that's another another interesting dilemma. You know, we'll see what happens long term there. You know, there have been proposals for for a, a wildlife crossing there, but, it, you know, it would also be it would be the, the biggest and most expensive amphibian tunnel ever constructed. And, you know, it's not clear that that funding exists or, uh, you know, or that it's even, uh, it's even, it's even feasible. So, you know, those kinds of amphibian bucket brigades, again, they're, you know, they're, they're these beautiful, inspiring um, situations that, uh, you know, are also kind of necessarily imperfect.
Another part of your book that I found very heartwarming was your reporting from visiting Tasmania, um, the roadkill yeah. capital of the world, and uh, talking about the people who pick up animals who have been hit on the road. Can you can you tell us about those those carers? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm so glad that that was that was a, a chapter that uh, that spoke to you because that that's I was one of my favorite experiences working on this book. So Tasmania, so I went to I went to Tasmania, which uh, which uh, you know has actually the highest roadkill the highest documented roadkill rate in the world um or certainly one of the highest um and you know it's it's just a uh, you know an island with you know really abundant profuse wildlife you know there are uh, you know wallabies and wombats and catamelons which are basically you know tiny kangaroos um and uh you know and, and there are all of these kind of rural sinuous highways through the bush so it's you know kind of this very volatile combination of of uh you know abundant animals and and sort of dangerous road conditions um and so as a result you know a lot of animals are killed but you know kind of the fascinating unique thing about uh you know about tasmania um is that you know of course it's part of australia so it has it, it has marsupials right all of you know basically all of the animals are marsupials um and as a result you know of course female marsupials carry their their joeys their their offspring in a pouch uh and you know what often happens uh very tragically is that the the mother is killed by a car but the joey the baby actually survives in the pouch um you know because the I mean, especially like an animal like a, like a wombat is this big robust animal um you know that ba- whose body basically acts as a as a you know a, a buffer um you know when she's hit by a car um so there you know there's this this just this incredible sort of army of uh you know of of Errors, which is basically, you know, the, the Australian term for wildlife rehabilitators who drive around uh, Tasmania checking the pouches of dead female marsupials, wombats and wallabies and patamelons and possums, and then extracting the still living joeys within. Um, it's, it's actually, it's, it's kind of... It's just fascinating and and you know a little bit gruesome because you know often what they do is they you know they they check they check the pouch of a dead animal and then to indicate that they've checked the animal's pouch and so nobody else has to do it they'll actually they'll spray they'll just spray paint uh, you know a line or an X uh, across that animal so you, you know you drive around and you see all of these dead spray spray painted animals it's it's kind of bizarre and and macabre <laughs> I can imagine. So, yeah, yeah, it's, it's really strange, and and um, and you know, so and so then when they when they find you know these these orphaned uh, joeys, these these babies, you know, they they then take them home and they they raise them, and you know, in some cases, you know, I mean, a baby wombat uh, can take two years to raise to adulthood, and that's two years of you know basically constant bottle feeding, and you know, and giving medicine and, you know, wiping their butts and, uh, you know, keeping them warm and cared for. And, you know, and some, um, you know, some, some of these carers who I met, you know, will have dozens of animals. I mean, it really becomes this incredible full-time job that they, you know, spend all of their, all of their savings on. Um, and uh, it's, that's again, just, you know, a remarkably, yeah, as you say, heartwarming, inspiring um, situation to you know to see this this island with such an incredible culture of of concern for wild animals. But you know, it's also just as just like the frog thing. You know, it's it's also a little bit uh, troubling in some ways. You know, in, in that I mean, here is this island that has you know some of the highest roadkill rates in the world, and yet you know there are basically no wildlife crossings. You know, there's really there you know there have there haven't really been 
infrastructural solutions um, put forth on on Tasmania, you know, and and as a result, these wildlife rehabilitators bear this, you know, enormous kind of societal burden, um, you know, when in some ways, you know, it's probably the responsibility of the government to be, uh, you know, trying to solve this, trying to solve this problem. Yeah. Yeah. And tragically, as you mentioned, it's not entirely clear that these rehabilitated animals um, or or that rehabilitating animals and releasing them to back to this dangerous environment is is helping these populations. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's you know, that's that that was definitely a you know one one point that uh, you know one one carer, a guy named uh, Bruce Englefield, who's you know sort of a, both a carer and studies the practice of caring, pointed out to me is that you know they're right that you know the, all of these carers are raising these animals to adulthood and then they're releasing them into the exact same you know dangerous situation that you know, made them orphans in the first place. Um, and, you know, it's not, it's not clear that, uh, you know, that how, it's not, I mean, no, really nobody knows what percentage of these animals survive because they're not really tracked. Um, and, you know, whether caring actually contributes to the, you know, the, the survival or the, the growth of wildlife populations. Um, so, yeah, it's a, you know, it's kind of a challenging situation. And, you know, I think that there's, I mean, one of the, one of the things that fascinated me working on this book is that there's, you know, there's interest, there's this interesting divide, I think, in some ways between wildlife rehabilitators and, you know, professional road ecologists and wildlife biologists and conservation biologists, you know, and, and the, the, the conservation biologists and the road ecologists, you know, I mean, their focus tends to be rare species, you know, species that might, uh, you know, really decline or even go extinct, you know, without without human intervention, whereas, you know, the, the wildlife rehabilitators, you know, basically take the perspective that, you know, that that every every life is kind of precious, even if it's, you know, a, a member of a, of a, a common species. Um, and, you know, as a result, there's, I, I think there's not a lot of cross pollination between those two communities. But, you know, at the end of the day, they're both concerned about the same problem, which is the road. Right. Yeah. And and in your book that you mentioned that there are some efforts that are trying to bridge those those two populations. What are some of the ways you found that the general public uh, is getting involved with road ecology? Yeah, uh, you know, it's it, it's um, in some in some really exciting and, and fun ways. You know, I mean, I mean, road ecology is really a field that's ripe for participatory science or volunteer science or citizen science, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, it's it's really, uh, you know, it's it's kind of a perfect field for the participation of the general public and you know and the and the the reason for that of course is that uh you know we're all driving around out there uh you know and we're we're all you know we're all sort of members and participants and contributors to the road network um you know it also doesn't take any um you know it doesn't take a huge amount of expertise to you know identify a you know a dead skunk or a raccoon um so as a result you know there are all of these sort of recent-ish citizen science efforts, you know, mostly using smartphone apps uh, that ask volunteers and, and you know, and everyday uh, citizens to, you know, basically log the roadkill that they see while they're driving around. And, you know, in some cases, that data has been really valuable in, you know, in, in I mean, first, you know, telling us stuff about wildlife populations, right? I mean, roadkill is this, you know, kind of inadvertent sort of form of of animal population sampling that tells you you know how many critters are out there and where they're distributed and you know if there are you know invasive species entering an ecosystem um you know it's i mean it's just it's just valuable sort of 
scientific data. Um, and, you know, it's also valuable data when it comes to identifying locations for wildlife crossings, right? I mean, all of that, you know, all of that citizen science can tell you, you know, where the roadkill hotspots are that, uh, you know, the transportation agencies need to need to deal with. Um, so, yeah, there are lots of great uh, citizen science projects out there. I got to take part in one of them in, in Montana, um, where basically spent a day, uh, you know, riding 50 miles on a bicycle, um, surveying roadkill, uh, you know, along along the side of, uh, of a busy highway. Um, and it was, you know, it was, it was really eye opening. I mean, I think that one of the, you know, the interesting things about roadkill is that, you know, when you're driving along in uh, a car on a, on a highway at 70 miles an hour, you know, you're so insulated from the world that you don't really notice most roadkill. You know, yes, you see the big, messy deer carcasses, but, you know, you're kind of sealed in your little bubble. Uh, and, you know, you don't really see the smaller critters. And it was, it was just, uh, you know, really remarkable being out there on a bicycle where you're, you know, you're rolling along at 12 miles an hour and you're much closer to the ground to see, oh man, there's, you know, there are so many songbirds by the side of the road. And, you know, and I mean, we saw magpies and ravens and red-tailed hawks, you know, there's, I mean, there's, you know, there's really a large bird community, especially that's being hit that, uh, you know, that you just don't detect, um, you know, when you're, when you're cruising along at 70 miles an hour. So I think that's, you know, that's part of the power of sort of participatory or citizen-led roadkill science too, is that, you know, is that it gets you out of your car in some cases and, and, uh, you know, allows you to kind of, see these trends and patterns that, uh, you know, wouldn't be necessarily visible, um, you know, if uh, if we were just uh, trapped in our cars. Yeah, definitely. And so we've talked a lot about some of the problems that roads create for wildlife and ecosystems. Um, but you also share in your book about how uh, emerging nations are leading the charge in designing roads with wildlife in mind. Do you mind saying a bit about that? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I, th I think it's, I mean, it's funny to you know, sort of go back to when I started working on this book proposal, you know, five years ago, I, th I mean, I think I had a, a very wrong idea of, of you know, sort of um, global road ecology and that, you know, what I imagined was that, you know, we've got, we've, you know, like we've built all of these great wildlife crossings in North America and Europe and, uh, you know, surely all of these other countries, um, you know, like India and Brazil and, and uh, you know, Nepal that are, you know, that whose whose own road networks are, are being built out now, you know, surely they're going to learn from, you know, all of the cool projects here in the Western world. Um, and, you know, and that's not really the case. I mean, I think that, you know, like there's, there are just some incredible exa examples of, you know, innovation in the developing world that we should be learning from. Um, you know, I mean, when I went to Brazil um, to to report this book, you know, I went I went to one of the one of the places I visited was uh, a state park um, that you know had a busy highway through it, and you know, Brazil had actually kind of rebuilt the highway um, so that it was really sinuous and wavy and had no shoulders. I mean, basically, they had taken this you know this fast moving straight highway. And they had remade it in a way that was essentially impossible to drive fast on, um, you know, the, and which is just kind of this incredible radical solution that, you know, we've, we really haven't tried, you know, in, in, uh, in North America. I mean, imagine, you know, imagine taking, you know, I-70 or I-80 and, you know, and, and deliberately making it curvy. Um, you know, that, that's just sort of uh, impossible to, impossible to imagine, but, you know, they, 
they had done that in Brazil for the sake of wildlife. You know, I mean, another another example that, uh, you know, I didn't visit in person, but, um, you know, I've certainly read a lot about and talked to people about, you know, is this this stretch of new highway in India, um, you know, where they, they, you know, the Indian government was building this highway through a tiger sanctuary. Um, and, you know, instead of instead of having a surface level highway with a few wildlife crossings, they actually elevated the entire highway on these giant concrete pilings um, so that the, you know, the, the highway went over the land and the animals could, you know, could sort of navigate the, uh, you know, the, the land underneath the highway uh, uninterrupted. So, you know, in, in that sense, it, you know, it's almost like the yeah, it's, it's you know it's it's just lifting the entire footprint of the highway out of the habitat zone, you know, which again is just uh, much more radical than uh, you know than anything that uh, has really happened in in North America. So you know, I, I find that sort of thing incredibly inspiring. You know, these there are these countries that are building out their transportation networks now, and and because they don't have you know sixty year old highways that are kind of set in stone, they're able to do some um, you know some really innovative, progressive, radical things. Hmm. Yeah, that's it's really interesting to hear about those examples. Um, so I would like to end maybe on a more philosophical note, as there is a philosophical thread running through this book, um, considering what roads mean for people. What do you mean when you say a road is never just a road? What do roads symbolize to societies? Yeah, that's that's that is that is a good question, Carolyn, and 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 really a uh, really a. a, a Broadhorn, um, and you know, I mean, I mean, they symbol so many different things, right? I mean, it's you know, it's kind of amazing to, you know, think about the all of the 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 music and literature in which roads symbolize freedom and human mobility. Um, you know, I mean, from you know Jack Kerouac to you know to Bruce Springsteen to Prince. You know, we roads are sort of this, uh, yeah, kind of the ultimate avatars of of uh, you know of our own movement it's you know the roads are how we escape our you know our humdrum childhoods and uh you know and 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 go west and explore you know and and that's i mean again you know one of the great ironies of roads is that they they contribute to human mobility even as they curtail and truncate animal mobility you know and uh, but there are all kinds of other other ways in which roads are roads are symbols you know one chapter of this book is about the, the history of of the US forest service which uh you know unbeknownst to most people i think operates the largest road network in the world almost 400,000 miles uh and you know a lot of those roads are old logging roads or firefighting roads, you know, that have been kind of repurposed um, by recreation enthusiasts, um, you know, of which I am one, Um, you know, people who use those roads to access nature um and you know and, and to and to explore to explore the wilds and you know and, and i mean kind of again the i'm gonna keep saying irony but i feel like there are so many ironies in road ecology but you know the the irony of you know all of those forest roads is that you know they, they are how we experience nature and you know i use them all the time to get to trailheads and fishing holes and you know and campsites and so on um even as they're destroying nature right i mean you know all of those all of those forest roads you know they they erode sediment into streams and you know and destroy trout and salmon spawning habitat you know they allow poachers to kind of get into the backcountry they become you know the, the points which wildfires start right i mean you know we know that those forest roads have really profound ecological impacts so you know that's that's uh, again the kind of the tension of roads i think is is that they you know they are yeah they're they're both uh, you know entry points into nature and disruptors and and destroyers of of nature um but you know because they 
you know, because they're so well used by people, you know, they've become these symbols, I think, of, of human entry and, and access, you know, and, and even though the Forest Service is, you know, often tries to close or even destroy those old harmful roads, you know, there's always a lot of uproar about that idea because, you know, those roads are, you know, that they, they kind of symbol in some, to symbolize in some ways, you know, our our ability to use nature and, and uh, you know, our dominion over nature as, as well. So they you know they carry yeah they, they do carry a lot of symbolic weight you know they they uh you know they're they're sort of the ultimate manifestation of you know this this idea we have that uh you know the the planet is ours for the the using and taking and uh you know any any attempt to uh you know to pull back on that access is um you know becomes these becomes this kind of political or or cultural flashpoint mm-hmm. yeah yeah, and and your book emphasizes a lot that you know we sh- we all use roads or most of us use roads, and that's why we should should care about crossings and how they affect the natural world. Um, yeah, I, th- I think I think so. You know, and I mean, that, and that was you know, I mean, one thing I was I was conscious of is is just you know is 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 I mean, it's it's hard because you know on on one level, you know, I mean. I've, all of the research that you know that I I looked at and conducted you know tells you of course that you know driving is one of the most harmful things we can do to the natural world right and and yet it's so inescapable I mean I you know I I, I of course uh, you know I I have a car and I use that car and you know I've I've hit wild animals and and so on right I mean I you know I, I think that. You know, it's. To, I mean, I mean, to to me, it's um, you know, shaming individual drivers for driving. Uh, you know that that just that just doesn't get you anywhere because we've set up this society that demands driving. Uh, you know, it's sort of like climate change, right? Where you know, where where we we figured out that we're not going to solve climate change by changing our light bulbs. You know, we need political and and infrastructural and social systems that uh, you know that 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 decarbonize our planet. You know, I think that, I think that, that, you know, road ecology tells us the same thing. You know, it's, it's, if, if the goal is to, you know, shame individual drivers, that, that gets us nowhere. You know, if the goal is to rebuild infrastructure that's less harmful to the planet, I mean, that's, that's kind of the, the task that's before us. Thank you again for talking with me, Ben. Thank you, Carolyn, for your great questions. I, I really appreciate it. If you'd like to learn more about Ben Goldfarb and his book, Crossings, How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet, we've linked to his website at scienceforthepeople.ca. On our page, you'll also find links to our show on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes, where you can listen to past episodes, subscribe, or leave a review. Thanks for listening to Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes. And we thank you for it. The show is produced by Bethany Brookshire and Rochelle Saunders, and is edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Carolyn Wilkie, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 